As we read through Romans chapter 8, it is easy to see why the church, generation after generation, has held this particular passage of Scripture up with such reverence and awe. As we said last week, generations of Christians have referred to Romans chapter 8 as the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian life, or as the highest peak in all of the Bible. What we would want to say about Romans 8 is that among all of the Scriptures, you will not find greater and more precious promises than what we find here in Romans 8. And the Holy Spirit plays an uncharacteristically prominent role in this chapter. Have you already noticed that? And I say uncharacteristically because it is typically the work of the Holy Spirit to not really aim attention at Himself, but to aim attention at Christ. But here, the Apostle Paul sets before us the Holy Spirit as both our divine liberator and as the guarantor of our resurrection and eternal life. And so in many ways, the Christian life can be described appropriately as life in the Spirit. Life that is animated and sustained by, directed by, and enriched through the Holy Spirit. So that apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life would be unthinkable for people like us in a world like this. Now in our remaining time, I want us to consider first of all the conflict or this antithesis that Paul is setting before us. Because it really is a conflict that he's showing. And he really begins to point it out in the previous verse, in verse 4, and now he continues it on. And the question is, what will it be? Life in the flesh or life in the spirit? That's the conflict, that's the antithesis. Life in the flesh or life in the spirit? During his ministry, Jesus frequently appealed to these sorts of starkly different choices that are set before us. He would say things like, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. He would contrast two different builders building two different homes. One a wise builder, one a foolish builder. The foolish builder building upon sand, the the wise builder building upon rock. Two stark options before us. And of course, this carries on a great tradition from the Old Testament as well. You think about Joshua leading the people into the promised land, and he stands before them having known their duplicity for generations and their sin and their idolatry and their compromises. And this point, before he takes them into the promised land, he stands before them and says, whose side are you going to be on? What's it going to be? See, I have set before you today life and death. Now choose life. And following on this biblical pattern, Paul sets before us two ways to live. Either we will live according to the flesh, which is sin, or according to the Holy Spirit. There in verse 5, carrying on from verse 4, Paul continues this contrast. And it's not just a contrast, is it? What Paul is pointing out is a rather massive conflict. The flesh and the spirit are not only two radically different realities, but they are also two radically different ways to live. Additionally, the flesh and the spirit bring about two different destinies. The flesh leads to death, but the spirit gives life. 
And so the flesh and the spirit are incompatible. And they represent the ongoing conflict between God and wickedness. As one scholar puts it, quote, The flesh and the spirit work according to completely different norms. And those whose existence is determined by the norms of the spirit will take the spirit's side in the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Now, in order to better follow the apostle's reasoning, we need to understand his terminology. What does he mean when he says flesh? I mean, when we hear that word flesh, we typically think of skin and sinews and muscle. Or if we're more spiritually minded, we'll think of perhaps especially sensual kinds of sin. But what is... What is the Apostle Paul getting at with this term flesh? Well, biblically speaking, usually flesh is shorthand for everything in the created order that is opposed to God. The flesh is humanity, for instance, in its unregenerate state, its unregenerate fallenness. And you don't have to be some wicked evildoer frothing at the mouth to qualify as being in the flesh. You just aren't in Christ, and that means you are still in the flesh. As I said, we oftentimes think of those primarily sensual or sexual types of sins when we hear the term flesh. But, you know, in, in Paul's uh, letter to the, uh, to the Galatians in chapter 5, he gives something of a rundown of what he calls the sins of the flesh. And yes, he names sexual immorality and sensuality among those things. But he goes on. And among those sins of the flesh or works of the flesh, Paul names enmity or always being at odds. He names strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and drunkenness. All of these and more qualify as works of the flesh, sins of the flesh. And then there's the term spirit. What is Paul getting at when he says spirit? Well, we've covered this already. Uh, Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. Variously, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit, spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of life. But in each case, he's referring to the triune God in the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So he's not talking about some abstract spiritual principle or the human spirit. He's referring to the person of the Holy Spirit, co-equal member of the triune God. Now, I want to point out something technical here because it has some bearing on how we read verse 5. So I want you to look at your Bible. I want you to look directly at verse 5. Zoom right in on it. Verse 5. Look at how it's written. And I want you to hear this as you're looking at your verse 5. I want you to hear what the Greek literally says the greek literally reads like this quote those according to the flesh i'll say that again those according to the flesh and if you look over a few more words the greek literally reads quote those according to the spirit now what's missing well a good verb right (laughs) well that's perfectly acceptable in new testament greek given the writing standards of the day but it makes it a little bit tougher when you're trying to translate it into contemporary english Now, that's why some translators prefer to render verse 5 as this. And if you have have a, a, a New American standard, this is how it reads. Those who are 
according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. Others, like we have in the English Standard Version, prefer to see that Paul is implying live there because that's just what he's referred to in verse 4 where he's referred to those who walk by the Spirit. He's talking about living. And so the presupposition of those translators is that it ought to read like you have in the ESV, those who live according to the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. The difference is whether Paul is making a statement about our being or about how we actually live. Is he referring to who we are according to the flesh and the Spirit or is he referring to those who live according either to the flesh or the Spirit? Which one is it? Well, I don't really think we have to make a choice. Because in this passage, what Paul is doing is he's making this broader point. And this is his point. That ontology gives way to economy. How about that? Ontology gives way to economy. How about this? In other words, being leads to doing. Who we are leads to how we will walk. So whether we see verse 5 as as needing to read those who are according to or those who live according to really ultimately makes little difference because Paul is making the whole point that who we are becomes how we live. And so Paul's argument goes something like this. It is not that Christians are able and routinely do, therefore, live either according to the Spirit or the flesh, depending on what kind of mood they're in in any given moment. That is not the point he's making. Nor is he suggesting that unbelievers have a menu of options available to them to either live according to the flesh or live according to the Spirit, and they can pick whichever one they feel most comfortable with. Paul is not making that point. What Paul is telling us is that it is not possible for the unregenerate, the one who does not know Christ, the one who does not have the Spirit of God, it is not possible for them to walk according to the Spirit because the Spirit does not dwell within them. And so they have neither the desire nor the ability to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Verses 7 and 8. This is Paul's point. On the other hand, He tells us in verse 9, Christians are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit. And that's not to say that Christians do not still struggle against sin. But that's the point. They are struggling against sin. Because their affections have changed. Because their heart has changed. And now they have a capacity to love God that they did not have before. They have a capacity of love for neighbor that they did not understand before. They have a growing hostility against sin, whereas before they had a growing love for sin. And so as a consequence, they no longer live according to the flesh, though they might still and still will struggle against the flesh. They no longer live in this sense under the controlling authority of the flesh, because they are no longer of the flesh, but of the Spirit. 
Now, so much of the battle for this happens in the mind, and Paul helps us to understand this here. And so let's consider, secondly, the battleground of the mind. Look once again at verse 5. Paul is building a pattern of reasoning. And you can see this in how he builds his argumentation. For thus and such. For thus and such. For thus and such. You have it in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. For those who live according to or who are according to the flesh, what does he say? Set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now stop there for a moment. When Paul says, set their minds, he is talking about the governing norm or the governing principle of one's life. For those who live according to the flesh, because they are according to the flesh, they have sin as the governing norm, the governing principle of their lives. What he's referring to here is our disposition. And if you are in the flesh, your natural native disposition is one of hostility towards God and the gospel. Even if you think you like God. Now, when we hear the word mind, set their minds, when we hear the word mind, we often typically think of our thought life, how we think about things. And that's appropriate. The mind certainly pertains to one's thought life, the intellect, how we process and understand information, how we think about things and the knowledge that we possess. All of that is kind of swept up in this category of the mind. But if you study the Bible closely, you'll see that oftentimes the Bible does not draw a real thick line between our mind and our heart or between the intellectual and the spiritual. It doesn't treat the mind and the intellectual life as one little piece of the self that's cordoned off into its own little domain. The Bible doesn't do that with any part of us. That's why the heart is not synonymous with emotions. The heart refers to the totality of the self. And there's a sense in which the mind, at times, plays a similar sort of role in the Bible. The greatest commandment, what is it? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I don't think we're meant to separate heart and soul and mind into these real distant kind of spheres in our life. I don't think that's what the Bible is getting at, and that does not comport with the Hebrew concept of the self. Rather, the mind and the, and the heart, the soul, these all overlap and harmonize together, making us who we are. In his excellent book, With All Your Heart, Craig Troxell points out, quote, that out of all the times that the Hebrew word for heart appears in the Old Testament, our intellectual and rational functions are most often in view. When our heart is not at peace with God, our thinking becomes hostile to God, darkened, futile, and debased. Our thought life is shaped and manipulated by the state of the whole heart and its wider and deeper agenda, whether it is polluted or sanctified. How about this? Think about it this way. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? 
You know what I mean, right? I mean, there are times when you're neck deep in a project. At work or at home or with the kids or whatever. You're working on something, you're focused on something. That's easy to answer. You know, what am I thinking about then? I'm thinking about this. But, but when you're not neck deep in a project, when, when there's not something so pressing that it, that it garners all of your attention, what do you think about then? Where does your mind drift? Where does your mind tend to naturally go? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? Does your mind still drift towards the lustful or the material? Does your mind drift towards old wounds, grievances, jealousies, coveting things you want that somebody has and you don't have it? Does it drift towards revenge? You were hurt, and the next time you see this person, you're going to say, boom, but what you really won't. But man, you fantasize about it. Where does your mind go when your mind has nowhere to go? And what we experience there has a lot to say about the Spirit's activity in our lives. To set the mind on the flesh is to give our unsettled, sustained attention to the flesh. That means the things of this world alone are what fill our field of vision. You see, you can be really well behaved. You can be a nice person and be terribly, terribly lost and in the flesh. And where we set our minds will create not only a way of thinking, but a way of living. Because the flesh... And the Spirit of God are at enmity. Therefore, there is an inescapable antithesis between living according to the Spirit and doing so according to the flesh. Now look there again at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Why this antipathy? Why this conflict? Because to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's why there's a conflict. Because setting the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You see the choices there again, life and death. And when Paul says that to set the mind on the flesh is death, I think he's saying something very similar to what he said earlier in chapter 6 when he says the wages of sin is death. To set your mind on the flesh is to still be in your sin, and the wages of that is death. And not just the physical decay of death, but the spiritual death as well. In contrast, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Those are key terms in the Bible, by the way. When the Bible describes God's work of salvation, of saving His people, over and over again, the words life and peace are applied to that divine, gracious work of salvation. Life and peace. You know, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And other than the name of Jesus himself, the most key word in John's Gospel is life. Over and over again, life. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light that gives life. Over and over again, salvation is depicted as, in one way or another, as an aspect of light. And life God makes us alive. Salvation is eternal life. It's abundant life and peace. What has Paul told us in Romans chapter 5? 
that since we have been justified by grace, we have peace with God. And that's your inheritance, Christian, if you're in Christ. Life and peace. You know, I think if you were to boil down what the world is looking for in all of its profane attempts, if you were to dig out all of the sin and all of the muck and all of the rebellion, all of the legalistic attempts to make yourself okay with God if there is a God, if you dig it all away, what you find in one way or another is this desire to have what they lack, life and peace. And friends, if we lack everything else, if we lack the money we wish we had, if we lack the parents we wish we had, or if we lack the siblings we wish we had, or if we lack the house or the health that we wish we had, one of the things that is yours by divine right is life and peace. Look again at verse 7. Paul now is explaining the basis by which he made the previous statement. The mind set on the flesh is death. Why? Do you see verse 7? Here's why. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What makes it so death-dealing? Because it's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Here Paul asserts the doctrine of unregenerate man's total inability. The doctrine of total inability is a subset of the doctrine of total depravity. We believe in the biblical doctrine of man's total depravity outside of Christ. What does total depravity teach us? Well, it's the Bible's teaching, not that we are as sinful as we could be. If we were as sinful as we could be, we wouldn't last five minutes in this world. What the doctrine of total depravity holds is that there is not a single dimension of our life that goes untouched and uncorrupted by sin. Sin has corrupted us physically. It's corrupted us mentally. It's corrupted us emotionally. It's corrupted us intellectually. That's the totality of the effect of sin. And as a subset of that, it has rendered us unable to either desire or make the effort to please God. And just in case we're not getting what Paul is saying, he further goes on in verse 8. Do you see it? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Which echoes what he tells us in chapter 3 of Romans, where he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. Now, we want to protest with that sometimes. We want to argue with Paul at that point. What do you mean no one seeks for God? That's right, no one, apart from God's grace, left to themselves, no one will search for God. Apart from God's grace, no one is a seeker for God. And no one does good. Well, I have unbelieving friends that do good. More on that in just a minute. Can you hold on to that thought? We're getting there. In chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, 
Paul writes that the problem with sinful humanity is that they see the truth of God in the things he's made. That they, are under, that they are able to understand his power and his goodness, his eternal attributes, they are able to discern in the things that he's made. Not only that, in chapter 2, Paul says God has gone so far as to burden the conscience of every person, believer and unbeliever alike. He's burdened our conscience with the knowledge of his law such that no one has a proper excuse for not turning to him. Now Paul says what we do then with that knowledge, the knowledge we behold in creation that shows us a good and a powerful God, the knowledge of the law that he has written on our hearts which shows us the moral God, what we do with that knowledge, Paul says, is that we stuff it down, we press it down, we suppress it, he says. We turn aside from it, and then what happens in our hearts is we become idolaters, worshiping what is in creation rather than the Creator. And some of the nicest, most honorable, decent people you know do that. Outside of Christ, even the most decent of people are not able to submit to God's law even when their actions are otherwise honorable. Now that just seems harsh, doesn't it? But follow follow the biblical reasoning. Outside of Christ, men and women remain under the judgment of God's holy law so that not even their best actions can reach the measure that is demanded by God's law itself. So they cannot please God because they cannot satisfy God's just demand according to the law, and therefore the law cannot justify them but can only condemn them. That's Paul's entire argument in Romans chapter 7. Think of it this way. Let's say you're working on a series of complex mathematical calculations. And there's a series of calculations and they are all connected one to the other and they all depend upon coming up with the proper sum in each one of those individual calculations. And the very first one you work on, you do something wrong and you get the wrong answer. You get the wrong sum. So that following that, you're going to get the wrong sum the whole way down. But what you do is instead of correcting the error that was made in the very first equation, you just keep pressing on, hoping that you will put forth enough effort to finally write what was wrong to begin with without actually correcting the original error. It won't ever happen. It just won't ever happen. And in a way, that's the predicament of those who are outside of Christ. They're at the wrong starting place. And no matter how hard they push, no, how, no matter how decently they behave, they won't ultimately get it right. As Leon Morris puts it, quote, those who live according to the flesh may have good intentions, but their horizon is bounded by the things of this life. The flesh is the focus of their whole life. Now, a person who is in the flesh, a person who does not know Christ, 
isn't waking up every morning and saying, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to live in the flesh. I mean, that's just, those aren't categories that they play with every day. Here, the apostle is stating a reality that isn't necessarily even something that the unbeliever is conscious of. They're not hopping out of bed saying, another day in the flesh. It's just that they are of the flesh. And therefore, what, what, what fills their field of vision, so to speak, is this life in this world, and that's it. The glory of God, the goodness of the cross, and the necessity of salvation, that's not within their field of vision because they are not of the Spirit, they are of the flesh. Now let's be clear. Being and living according to the flesh does not always, in fact, very often, it does not issue in detestable actions. And in fact, you can do good and decent things while still living outside of Christ. <coughs> and, um, <coughs> excuse me, and we're thankful for that, aren't we? I mean, we're thankful that people who don't know Jesus have, by the grace of God, the ability to do good and kind and decent things. In fact, some of you could name unbelievers that would make much better neighbors than some of the Christians you know. But even those good deeds are rooted in the prideful project of the salvation of the self. We're all born legalists. You start talking to a little kid, and they may not know anything about grace, but they will tell you if they think something's unfair. We're born legalists. Our natural bent in matters of religion and salvation are always towards the legalistic. Give me a rule to follow, a law to obey, a practice to perfect, a technique to master in order to gain salvation or whatever I want to call it. Give me that. That's the religion I want because that is the natural religion of man. And apart from the intervening grace of God, that's where we will be. We will be hopeless self-salvationists. And just in case you don't think that's all that bad, consider this carefully. Legalistic religion, the religion of self-salvation, the natural religion of every human being apart from Christ, is blasphemy no matter how well-behaved the practitioner is. No matter how much you personally like the self-salvationist, no matter how good a friend they are, no matter how helpful, no matter how many times they've lent you their snowblower, the self-salvationist hates God because he absolutely detests the message of the cross. He hates grace. I think one of the reasons why so many Christians are uncomfortable with this truth is that we just have a hard time understanding or coming to terms with sin. I found the following words from the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson to be quite helpful. Listen to what Carson writes. Quote, Whether one considers the theme of God's wrath 
or those who are the particular objects of his saving love. Whether God thunders from Sinai or weeps over Jerusalem, the substratum that holds the entire account together is sin and how God, rich in mercy, deals with sins and sinners for his own glory and for his people's good. Sin offends God not only because it becomes an assault on God directly, as in impiety or blasphemy, but also because it assaults what God has made. Sin is rebellion against God's very being, against his explicit word, against his wise and ordered reign. It results in the disorder of creation and in the spiritual and physical death of God's image bearers. With perfect justice, God could have condemned all sinners and no one could have justly blamed him. In reality, the Bible's storyline depicts God out of sheer grace, saving a vast multitude of men and women from every tongue and tribe, bringing them safely and finally to a new heaven and a new earth where sin no longer has any sway and even its effects have been utterly banished. One simply cannot make sense of the Bible without a profound and growing sensitivity to the multifaceted and powerful ways that the Bible portrays sin. If we get sin right, if we understand what sin is and why it is such a massive existential and real and physical and spiritual problem, if we understand sin properly in light of God's holiness, then everything he's told us here makes perfect sense. The message of the cross says this. Think about it this way. The message of the cross says this. Uh, and let me put it this way. After, once, once we understand the gospel, this, this is what we come to understand. That my biggest problem isn't out there, it's in here. And the solution to my problem, which is in here, is out there. Namely, in the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does in us. But the one who is not in the Spirit, the one who does not know Christ, still lives in this reality, and here's what it is. My biggest problem is out there, and the solution for that problem is in here. And beloved, listen, that's as anti-Christ a message that has ever been preached. There is no more anti-Christ message than that. It is a perversion of God's truth that hides behind good works. And what a tragedy it is when people who by our own standards are decent and kind nevertheless harbor within them hearts that hate God because they hate the gospel. They detest humility that is required by grace, therefore they hate grace. They see as foolish the glorious truths of God's love and justice and mercy that are declared at the cross of Jesus. They want nothing to do with it. They remain indomitable in their demand to have a salvation that they bring about in the flesh. And in rejecting the grace of God, they demand to be judged by the standard of the law, which ironically is what they will receive. 
So no wonder there's a battle raging. No wonder we're told in Romans 12 to not conform to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If our minds are not being renewed regularly under the Word of God, then we will end up thinking like the world. And if we think like the world, we will end up believing what the world believes. Well, finally and quickly, Paul points us to life in the Spirit. Paul's writing to Christians, specifically the church in Rome. These are members of the visible church. Those who at minimum profess faith in Jesus and have received the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. And so he addresses them appropriately as fellow Christians. Do you see it there in verse 9? You, church, you Christians, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And hear that today, Christian. You are not in the flesh. You struggle with the flesh, and you will until the day we slough off these mortal coils and enter into glory. But I'm telling you, you are not in the flesh. You are no longer of the flesh. And that is why the Apostle Paul with such confidence can call us to walk according to the Spirit because that is what you are. You are according to the Spirit. Then he makes this qualifying statement. Do you see it there? Also in verse 9. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now here Paul is distinguishing between the visible and invisible church the visible church are all those we see that say i believe in jesus and i've been baptized and we treat them like members of the covenant community because ultimately we cannot peer into that place where only god sees but there is the invisible church and that's the term we use for all of those who are truly regenerate all those who have not just a profession of faith but a possession of faith Not just those who profess Christ, but possess Christ. And hopefully there's very, very small percentage of a distinction there. But you know, Jesus in his parable of the wheat and the tares told us that was the way it was going to be within the people of God. There would be those who profess faith only and those who truly possess faith in Christ. And so this here, even that small statement, that small qualifying statement there is an invitation for us to take account of our own hearts to discern our own hearts, to know what we believe and to know that we believe it. Well, you see there verses 10 and 11, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Notice there in verse 10, He brings Christ into the picture. And now He's gone from talking about the Spirit dwelling in you, now He refers to Christ being in you. Well, is is Christ and the Spirit and God, are those just all interchangeable terms? No. Typically, when the apostles refer to, quote, God, they are referring to the Father. And then there is the Son, and then there is the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, the one God who is three in person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see in this passage a reference to God, a reference to Christ, and a reference to the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I love about that is that it is all in the context of God dwelling in us and guaranteeing our salvation. Christian, if you want to feel secure, then think about this. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
are all involved in guaranteeing your salvation. Now, I don't know if you can even begin to imagine a more secure place to be than that. It's as though God has banked his triune nature in saving you. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? And he does not remain simply a deity over us. But he is also the God who comes to dwell within us. Now, I don't want you to have this picture of a little man walking into your chest. We don't know exactly what this means, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This being in Christ and Christ being in us. But it does mean that in some mysterious, profound way, God himself comes so near that he refers to it as indwelling us, being in us. What a thought. What a thought. J.I. Packer, in his really wonderful, helpful book entitled Keep in Step with the Spirit, says that the primary trait of the Holy Spirit's ministry is presence, his presence with us. Yes, the Holy Spirit imbues us with spiritual power. Yes, the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to the church. But the primary, central, identifying trait of the Spirit's ministry is one of presence, His nearness, His withness with us. And all of this leads to the hope, the confidence that this same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us up as well. Just so that we're not confused that the Spirit of life, that being in the Spirit gives just sort of this um, nebulous, hard-to-define, ethereal sort of, quote, life, Paul reminds us, now you know I'm talking here about life, life, right? I'm talking about your body, your mortal, corrupted, decaying, dead body one day being so overcome by this power of the Spirit that you are regenerated physically just like you were regenerated spiritually. That you are brought to life physically just like you were brought to life spiritually. You know I'm talking about that kind of life, right? No half measures here with the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you also. You don't get a lesser Spirit. You don't get a lesser resurrection. The same Spirit who reanimated the dead body of Jesus Christ will raise you up as well. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we ask that Your Word would take root in our hearts so that we would remain hopeful in this hard world, that we would remain joyful in the midst of sorrows, that we would keep in peace in a world full of conflict. Oh Lord, we thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit, for keeping us to yourself and keeping us forever. In this we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.